Welcome to Playing With Fire, the podcast for people who are ready to custom build their love. We're talking about non-monogamy, however you design it, as an individuation opportunity. Want to leave the default and make your life spectacularly you? You're in the right place. Okay, we're here. It's a fresh week. You and I have spent a lot of time talking about relationships already this week. We have. And I want to talk about envisioning your dream relationship. Fun. And I want to talk about it with you specifically because I think this is a pretty good exercise for you. Well, envisioning is always good exercise for me. Okay, sure. And um, when we when we talk about envisioning dream relationships... A lot of times people imagine like they're one person, even if you're leaning over into the open relationship world, it's easy to fall into the monogamous habit. So as though we were doing, hey, let's envision our dream relationship versus I would like to envision mine and you envision yours. And then also I want you to envision your dream relationships because Yes. I want to shift us out of the idea that a relationship is the sum total of your your relational being. It, it and I this isn't about this is important to me because it's not about whether these are you know whether you're going to go um collect and create for yourself a a group of people who you have sex with or you're deeply emotional connect emotionally connected with it's it's really about envisioning your relational experience across friendships, close relationships, um, people you share time and space and energy. Yourself, possibly? I mean, you might want to have a relationship with yourself. <laughs> As a Jungian psychologist, I wouldn't know anything about that. No, that, I understand that that's new territory <laughs> for you, but... so. Envisioning your dream relationship, the reason that I was thinking about this as a title for this episode, and I I often don't start off with a title. I start from an idea, but um, I was thinking about this and it popped into my head as a title because monogamous habits, right? No matter how we're trying to do relationships, monogamous habits, uh, they have us envision a dream relationship, which also puts us in a pretty... A tricky spot, right? Where we start to imagine that we that we only have one shot to get this this relationship. Like one we need we need to get not just our needs met, but we need to get our relational experience, everything we want from relational experience, we need to get it all in one place. And we also tend to put relationships that happen to have that quality on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. And my relationship with you has gotten put on that pedestal before, um, both inside by by you, love you, <laughs> but yeah. by you, yeah. But also um, from the outside, people often will see um, our relationship, and I ha- I get it reflected back to me that it looks that that it's um, that it looks like a dream relationship. But I think that's a devaluation of the other relationships I have in my life that I don't actually, I don't want that devaluation because just because you and I have some descriptive hierarchy, we, we really do. We, um, we, (laughs) 
what with the kids and the, the well yeah our life looks the, the a certain life way that we have. and just because of how things have played out i have struggled a bunch to find long other long-term partners that aren't just comets a comet hang on pause for a second a oh. comet might be described as a partner who you do have a long-term connection with but they they come in your life in a more intense phase and then they they pass back out of it and Sometimes comets show up on a really regular schedule and sometimes they show up on a really chaotic schedule. And you, there is a level of counting on them, but um, yeah, it's not an everyday relationship. And I, I have quite a few of those and fewer of those long-term committed relationships the way that I do with you. And yeah, I think the default is to imagine that that means I think that our relationship is you know, the dream relationship or a dream relationship when, I don't know, I think the process of, of envisioning what I want in relationships as an ongoing, like that's a, that is a day to day sure ongoing part of my existence. So personally. how often do you revisit your envisioning of, well, our relationship because we have it, mm. you know, pretty, pretty close and often but any any relationship yeah i mean our relationship i mean we have our regular schedule so i i have some uh i have some inspiration to yep. revisit what i want out of our relationship at our um at our weekly check-ins our celebration and recalibration check-in um but also at our quarterly and yearly check-ins and our three year so there are all those um but i think about what i envision for relationships every day every day well that makes sense for someone who spends so much of their professional life focused on relationships and then also i mean you're in them yeah there's the and thing you though. i think of this as like this is well this is like how i create the life i want right too, though and and you so we are different we are not the same person and you spend a lot of uh, a lot of your energy thinking about how life can get better like how, how oh, things yeah. can be better I'm than a maximizer. they are. You're a maximizer. And way. I'm I'm learning the skills of that. Um, but I didn't come in like that. Like that. I didn't enter this relationship from that point of oh, view. Because it's so interesting. Yeah, you um you have tended to uh, think of yourself or you describe yourself to me as being um not exactly risk averse, but relationally risk averse. Yes. Whereas I am more risk averse in certain areas. Like I wouldn't, I won't take part in like risky sports, but I will absolutely take big risks um, in developing the relationships I really want, even if it's scary yep. and puts me at an emotional, on an emotional tightrope, suspended over a vast expanse of nothingness. <laughs> I am, I am relatively courageous when it comes to creating. The relationships right. that I want. And I do, I absolutely, it matters that obviously I care about relationships enough to make my entire career about them and all of my academic work about them. And I don't know, I also just had a, I had a realization, um, oh, maybe about uh, 18 years ago that Unless I took the, the creation of 
intentional relationship seriously, I wasn't going to have them. And so at first for me, it was all about friendships because I had already gotten married. I got married very young. I got married when I was 20, engaged when I was 17, married when I was 20. So I kind of considered that one a foregone conclusion. Like, okay, well, check. There's where mm-hmm. I get to get all of that stuff from because um, I was monogamous. But I didn't have friendships. I, I had work colleagues in my late teens, early 20s. I barely made friends at college. And when I had a baby at 22, well, 23, I was freshly 23, um, I didn't, I didn't have any friends and I was lonely. And yes. my way of dealing with problems is to solve them. And that sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but... Well, the thing is, that between... is not the only way to experience problems. They can be experienced as something to be endured. Just, just lived with <laughs> And that's what I meant about learning the skills. Yeah, because I I have a tendency to just live with stuff. Which is, it is a skill. It is a skill. Endurance and um, like bearing a burden or bearing the, the toleration of whatever you've chosen is, well, it's, I mean, pretty precious for some careers, for some life paths. I think life paths. things like that as um, it's a school, a skill. It's also a tool. And like any tool, it's not universally applicable. You know, uh, um, yes, I can. Uh, this isn't great. I don't really like this, but this is how things are. So I will deal with it. That's a great tool. <laughs> don't apply it to everything. You find yourself in some pretty miserable situations. So do you think that you applied the tool or the skill of enduring um, relational? Yes. Oh, <laughs> I, I was, yeah, I was <laughs> actually looking for like relational, um, like mismatch or like a, a poor mm-hmm. fit or whatever. Like, yeah. And so why? So I misapplied the tool because, I mean... It, what thinking I have done about this, and it's a pretty big thing for me, it has to do with fear. Um, the fear of being abandoned. I mean, a pretty common one. I mean, um, yeah. So, okay, I'm just going to endure this because if I don't, if I try to make it better, I might lose this one and then not have any others. Pretty simple, pretty childish, pretty limited well, in, in my imagination. Childish, though. So let's reframe that. Childish. Like, that sounds like you were having your relationship from your child parts. From my child. That's exactly what I'm, mean. yeah, I'm sorry. That's what I mean when yeah, I say I mean, childish. So childish right. I, I don't think it's, that's a bad thing. Yeah. That's, but the, the reframe is just, you, we all have, if you're using the language of internal family systems, we'd think about these child parts. They're, yep. um, you might think about them as their parts that were, they're frozen in time, basically. Right. They, they experienced either significant trauma or endured significant disconnection and got stuck and they don't know yeah. that there's another way. Yeah. Other people's child parts might not have those fears. Mine do. Have a, and they yeah. in fact and they, impact me. Or they might have adapted to that same fear. Because I have oh, a deep yeah, fear different of abandonment adaptations. too. And I'm sure. guessing if you're listening to this, you recognize somewhere in your life that you have an abandonment fear. Because it, so, it that's a I pretty mean, common human It's a pretty common human, human experience. experience yeah. So your adaptation your route to feeling safe was to endure mm-hmm. less or like less than you wanted or how would you characterize that? Um, 
Well, I, uh, I would characterize it as enduring something that uh, I didn't immediately know how to change. Oh. So there's some lazy, well, my, my judgment of myself includes laziness. I didn't put the effort in to imagine what could be changed. And until I had a picture of what I might change, I just endured. Okay. So, Maybe. <laughs> well, no, you know? I just, I, what I heard in there is relational learned helplessness. Ah, well, that definitely applies to me. Mm-hmm. I saw my brother do that. I haven't heard bunch. it framed that way for, for me. Yeah. Yep. When my brother became an adult, I was watching him first in his friendships and then his romantic relationships. And um, he's, he was three years, eight months younger than me. So enough distance that I could sort of watch him. Plus, I matured really, really quickly because I was the parentified child and he was the sheltered, but also, oh, he had his own challenges. That He did not have an easy time of it either. I watched him act as though he were helpless and it made sense because the role he played in our family of origin was that he was, he was the, um, he was the designated uh, problem. Oh. He, he he had the problems. And I think like you just described, I remember watching him act as though he were helpless. I mean, it started when he was when he was young. He acted as though he could not read. And then one day I found a, a game to play with him and I taught him how to read in like a couple of hours. Um and he had rejected that idea until he was eight. And then I watched my own children do that too. That's yeah. an interesting one. When mm-hmm. a kid's ready to learn to read, it happens really fast. Unless they have a learning issue, but that's beside the point. Um, I watched him act helpless because it also got him something. And I wonder if this is true for you. There is my... another aspect of it that I thought of while you were describing your brother. So he was the designated problem. I was the designated golden child. Which meant anything I was doing must be good. So other people are saying this is good. They must be right. I'll just endure with my experience of this. So in other words, like whatever you were doing was automatically good. Yeah. And therefore, if you weren't enjoying it, it kind of didn't matter. It was on it me. Was already... That was like my problem. It was wrong. That was something wrong good. with me. <laughs> yeah, I don't exactly. There must be something wrong with me, which, by the way, for me was a current running through the golden boy experience anyway, is um, you're, you're so good. And I'm in there going, no, I'm not. Something must be wrong with me that I don't see that I'm that good. Okay, this is weird. So then we Internal, get to this situation. So you cognitive dissonance about cognitive, your own yes. goodness. And I know your intelligence because you were also labeled a gifted child. Mm-hmm. You had skipped a couple grades at different times and you weren't. Like you, mm, I remember everybody talking about you as if you like, oh, gifted, yeah. mm-hmm. brilliant, so intelligent. And it sounds like and it I was believed a them, <laughs> but, but it, it like was a huge burden. Um, and I, I mean, I was in gifted classes, but I didn't get that label. So the gifted classes were just fun for me. And I don't remember any burden from it because it was not an identity for me. I just went to the classes and enjoyed the stuff and yeah. then went home it and interacted. I was, you know, treated like. I was definitely not special. Yeah, you were. It didn't have the same impact. Yep. So I'm hearing that you have been put on a pedestal and therefore you have lost 
a key um, sense of that you get to not just envision your relationships, but then create them or that your judgment of whether they're a good fit even has anything go. to do that's, with that's it. Good. I, I will envision my dream relationship. And oh, by the way, I'm wrong. <laughs> I will envision it, create it, and I'll have been wrong. And that won't be what I want after all. Okay. <laughs> so this, this is really interesting to me because we talk about this stuff all the time. So I know a lot about your relationship history, but I know that you married someone the first go around that you now often scratch your head and you're like, I don't get it. It doesn't, that doesn't fit the pattern of what it didn't fit the pattern of like the other people you dated before or your state, your own stated goals leading up to. Yeah. So, it's... so there's like, there's something there about your, it's almost like your imagination shifted. Do, do you, is there anything to this? Do you think that you started to like use other people's imagination of what, yeah, like your, your marriage relationship should be? So Rather I, than I your own? just like to lean into the microphone and say, yes, <laughs> yes, um, be, because what I'm describing, which I haven't heard myself say this, I don't trust my imagination. Well, who the hell else is you going to trust? Uh, well, as I'm learning now that I'm um, a certified old person. I'm like seriously disturbed uh, right now. I'm finding that there isn't anybody else, which leaves me in a kind of limbo. I have to learn to trust myself. I love that you're a certified to, old person. I am. That's awesome. Do you uh, mean like the AARP? Has I don't a actually have the certificate from the AARP, but I have much mail. <laughs> I can I could show I you love, credentials. I love your burgeoning elderhood. Well, I think it's really sexy. Um, well, thank you. I do. I'm embracing it. And this is one of the things that I would like not to carry to the end of my life, this, this mistrust of my imagination. So I'm learning how to vision. I'm, I love this conversation, um, you know, largely because it's so much about me, which I love very much. And we talk about me all the time. But, um, <laughs> Let's the, talk about you. But the ability and the, um, the willingness to envision mm -hmm. something new, something uh, different, something more in line with my desires. Well, ah. I have to believe and trust my desires. And then I have to imagine how I can get there and trust that. <laughs> I have trust issues with myself. Okay. And then you just, desire just entered the room. Mm -hmm. So Lacan entered the room. Aha. Right? So I know about Lacan because I was next to you while you were reading it. You were, you actually really helped me understand Lacan. So when I studied Jacques Lacan in my graduate studies, you started, studied Shaka Khan in your graduate <laughs> studies? Did not, oh, Jacques, Jacques Lacan. Oh, Lacan. Okay. I, can, I have no French accent whatsoever. Okay. L-A-C-A-N, Lacan. Um, psychoanalytic philosopher, basically. And you helped me understand what he... Oh, what I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Nothing. I just... I, the Shaka Khan thing is just really he, making me laugh. Hang on. I got to get you're it in out. A, okay. It's <laughs> I cracked myself up. It's okay. becoming really apparent that you were born in 1967 right now because some of our audience has no they idea who you're talking who about Khan because they are shame. just regular aged adults versus... I'm regularly level. aged for someone of you're my generation. Level. It's true. Advanced level. Okay. Anyway. Yes. Look okay. on. So the, you said you have to learn to trust your desire, mm -hmm. trust your imagination, and therefore trust that you are in touch with your desires. Yeah. 
And the reason it made me think of Lacan is desire is not always something we want to act out, first off. Right. But also desire is by nature about the space between me and that thing I want. Because desire is about the longing. Okay. Um, desire is, you know, the the jouissance, the the the, the phallus in Lacan, the, the I the thing want that you this, don't the thing, have. The, the thing, thing that I, I cannot have. <laughs> the thing I, and therefore I get to be in the desire because as soon as I have the thing, I can no longer, I, I can't desire it. Instead, I have it. Which is a different Now I could enjoy it, celebrate it, um, ah, revel in it, right? Okay. But also I could get complacent and bored with it. So, so there is a, there's a real, there's a challenge there to allow ourselves to desire something is also to allow there to be space between myself and that, that, that thing, that experience mm. that I want, right? Or to allow myself to cycle in touch and out of touch with it. And when I think about you knowing your desires, I think, is it maybe because you try to fix it? too tightly oh. like i need to label my desire fix I need it to you know, mean like like harden it yeah and like keep it in keep place it static mm -hmm. right so if once i know my desire and i know what my imagined envisioned <gasps> relationship is oh like when early early days when you would ask me my favorites and i wouldn't be able to answer because i thought i was committing to a lifetime of of um uh, butter brickle being my favorite ice cream flavor yeah one of my favorite I questions I, was, I felt like a commitment yep. and i have met now so i date a lot and i've met a lot of people so when i ask favorites questions some people are like oh it's this you know they i say what's your favorite color and they say green and we move on um or if you ask me i say may 24th and we move on because that's my favorite color um may 24th standing in my backyard that's my favorite color but mm -hmm. um the experience of asking people what their favorites are yep there's another whole kind of person they freak out and they're like nope i don't have favorites there's the cheaty anagonye kind of well there is they're the kind that can't disposal. make the decision but yeah. then there's the kind like you and when you finally got this across to me i was like oh love i mean what's your favorite right this moment right yeah. now right just 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 share with me what would satisfy your aesthetic self right now and that changed the game. You started it, being able to answer the question. It did change although... the game. And I'm still like getting comfortable with that. It's, it didn't just happen. I'm still having to learn how to feel okay in claiming a favorite. Right. Which, how interesting, because one of the things that I envision in my relationships is that I, I like to know, I mean, I like control. Boy, I like control. I like to know the future, right? And so yeah. it seems like I would be the person who wanted to like make things static and make things fixed and like pin them down. But I actually really like dynamic systems. I like taking as a given that you will be different tomorrow. You, yeah. I find you to be much more relaxed about whether... Um, whether people are different day to day and you have a really loose grip of, on like me needing to be self-consistent. You, you let me be incredibly changeable, mm -hmm. but you're not comfortable with your favorite ice cream being changeable. So you said earlier that, <laughs> that 
you you did think that I I had some intelligence, and I see where you're going here, and it's no. really an interesting picture because sure, so I won't I I'm worried about f- claiming and like locking in a favorite, mm-hmm. and I'm in a relationship with you, which is a, a commitment. Yep. But not to something fixed. Yeah. So I, what if I committed to the concept of having a favorite and then let the favorite change? It's, it's a different huh. way to envision it. Uh, so that actually brings us to some of my core um, themes. When I think about helping people envision their dream relationships, because that's a thing I do every day. Every day, either I'm doing it with individual clients, private clients, I'm doing it in um, group sessions. Sometimes I'm writing about it or I'm speaking about it like this, but I, I think of this as a core part of my work because without envisioning our dream relationships, can we actually do that thing I talk about where we, you know, create the relationships we really want? Well, we could create something, but (laughs) but it doesn't seem like it would lead toward what that, that so dream there, relationship is. So we need some processes here. Mm, aha. Right? You, we need processes that help us get out of which wherever we're stuck, whether we're stuck with being too fixated on what I, what I say I want needs to stay exactly the same or whether we're stuck because we actually see so many choices we can't even seem to commit to one or whether we're stuck because we feel helpless in our, in our own right and ability to to make our relationships to state Uh our our want and then make it happen no matter what which way this is difficult one of the antidotes is starting to have language around relationships sure right like without language this is really really hard and that is where you and i made early days we started to make changes to our very beings in those early days when we were, um, well, whatever we were doing when we might have called it dating, except we didn't call it dating. I don't know what we were doing because we were also living together. It was very, very confusing. But really quickly, the two of us found out that we both, um, we like wordplay. We like to talk about words and we like to understand what, what does that word mean to you? I don't think we're using that word the same thing. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, I don't think that hey, words only have, they only have so much value. And a lot of their value is in, uh, can you tell me what that means to you? Mm-hmm. So when I'm helping someone envision a relationship, one of the things I want to know is what's the language you use of relationships? How, what, um, what does it mean to you to have a relationship? What does that even, like? Get, let's get really okay. basic here. When you're gonna, when you're talking dream relationships, what do you mean by relationship? Right. So this is a place where a scholarly approach can actually help. I think anyone, because I, I did actually, um, when my brother was living with us and he was very sick, he and I, we would drive um, those early morning drives to dialysis. Mm-hmm. So we would be up like four o'clock get up in at, the morning. Yeah, we'd get up at three forty-five. The alarms yeah, were still on my phone. Yeah, because it was a four thirty yep. appointment. Right, and we'd drive to dialysis and he um my brother was a talker and i loved that about him so even much. early in the morning even early in the morning and so we would talk about random things um, and a lot of times sitting in doctor's offices and hospitals talking about random things and 
what I noticed is the more we talked about what each of us meant by the words we were saying, the closer together we found we could get, even though he and I could not have been more, we were politically very, very different. We were very different in our, our way of being, the, the things we found meaningful, theoretically. Like it seemed like we were different, but every time we would define our terms, we would take that scholarly approach and I would, I would just sort of poke him. I was, I was in grad school at the time. I would um, poke him to tell me more about what you mean when you say, you know, we'd be talking about things like gun control or we'd be talking about abortion. And I would just ask him to tell me what he meant. Every single time we did that, we found common ground. Mm. Every single time. And this was in 2015 and 16. So a pretty... Uh, lively time to be having those discussions Charged time mm -hmm. and i know a sibling relationship is different from a romantic relationship in some ways but um well in some really important ways but um <laughs> but also there is this real closeness and he was dying so we were um there was a a, a raw intimacy mm -hmm. in these conversations and defining our terms it's such a simple tool to simply turn curiosity and and watch the tone of my voice because what I had to do the other tone the other tool I used was watching the tone in my voice and make sure that I asked tell me more about what you mean when you say that mm -hmm. in a genuinely open-hearted way um, which was not how either of us were raised versus I, a challenging way right so that, he and I uh, were raised to poke holes in each other's arguments it was debate and every second of yeah. every damn day mm-hmm and I was trained and I got pretty good at it because my father wanted somebody to spar with. And um, John didn't want to do that. He never did. He always wanted kindness and gentleness. And so it was sort of like refinding our, our intimate connection. Oh, if I just turn toward you with genuine gentleness and open-hearted belief that we can that we can find shared oh. meaning in our humanity then we also our our relationship changed because i mean he was living in our house and it was really hard and we had seven children here and it was and he had he needed space in the house and oh my gosh it was so hard but our 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 relationship changed and then actually became closer to the one that i had envisioned us having which was that we would care about some of the same things and so the skill that you used to get there was this working on shared language yeah which is which is not um it's not a hard thing but it's not a simple thing and it's, you have to have the conversations, and the it, meta conversations about your conversations. Right, meta conversations. And it also required this sort of constant attention. So John didn't have the emotional bandwidth at the time. He was sick and um, it was excruciating. He had little, little children. So it was, it was awful. So he, it was, it was up to me then to say, I'm going to turn all of my gentleness on this. And he, so he was a little rough and that was fine. Well, that was the deal. Yeah. He and was heard, able to hold that space, but we still found the tool useful. So you talk about um, in various of your your uh, professional capacities about talking about the value of assuming goodwill in 
mm-hmm. um, in spaces where that is a good idea. But I'd never thought about conveying goodwill, which is you're talking, that's what you're talking about now. Oh, yes. You're like, yep. you're conveying, like you're doing the things to convey to your brother the goodwill, that this is a conversation from a point of view of relationality, not debate and competition. Yep. That awesome. is so important because, so I was taught to um, to think about assuming goodwill, to like, I was taught that when I was being taught to be a sex educator. Um, shout out to Raz Deshavo. she She's the one who introduced that idea to me, like, oh, assume goodwill because you're going to be in um, a tender space talking about tender topics, mm-hmm. sexuality. And what you're saying right now is, right, Assuming goodwill is great. It, it it gives me some ownership. I can be in any room and I can choose to assume goodwill and therefore be in a more open-hearted stance. But what you just added is I can also actively take responsibility and proactively convey yeah. goodwill. And yeah, one of the ways that I do that with you is by making sure that when when I hear you struggling with your imagination because I know it's a place where you struggle to take yourself to trust yourself I was going to say take yourself seriously but really trust yourself trust myself yeah I will slow down and I'll make sure I get your eyes I catch your eyes so that you know that I I trust your imagination and that is totally what I'm doing I'm trying to convey goodwill like I will receive your imagination That's what I'm trying to do. And I could even put words to this, though. I could say, I'm going to receive your imagination without holding you to it because I know that's what you're scared of. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And that comes from years of getting to know you and your sense of helplessness and your fears about helplessness. So one tool being, let's define our terms. Mm -hmm. Another tool being um, finding some shared meaning in those terms because we don't have to actually agree that the the words have the same meaning, we could say, hey, in a dictionary, this word could have meaning one, meaning two, meaning three. But we could agree that each of these meanings is valid in the context that we're using it. Yep. Like my context might be different from yours. Yeah, I don't okay. have to use the word the same way, but I have to know how you're using it. We've also now talked about starting to use your imagination more actively by... By just allowing yourself to trust and giving yourself the grace of being able to change your mind and be the dynamic human you are. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's quite a ride for me. And it's, uh, well, the thing is, I know that this is a necessary piece of moving toward a dream relationship, a dream life, you know, a dream day-to-day existence. I mean, that's what we're really talking about. You know, we started off talking about, I wanted to talk about, you know, envisioning a dream relationship, but what I'm really talking to people about is, uh, how do you want to spend the rest of your life? Right. What day by day, minute by minute, a question I ask our kids all the time is, how do you want to spend your Mm -hmm. hours? Because if you don't know that, you can very easily create for yourself a life where you will spend the majority of your hours actively doing things you hate. That's true. It's the same with your relationships. Right. It's so easy. And so is this, is this, does this track for you? When you were creating your early relationships, mm-hmm. 
and potentially using you I asked you if you were using someone else's imagination right um, if you were fulfilling some imagination that was like handed to you totally um, yeah so <laughs> did you did you take the time to think about how you wanted at any point did you did you have those moments or even just a flash where you're like oh the fast forward of this video is not gonna look pretty this is not how I want to spend my hours. That's like, did you a have moments? really good question. And the answer is no. And the reason is because I believed in that, well, that white male Ken Hamilton way anyway, that I was going to live forever. Oh, I forget about that. And you that had the immortality thing, yes, which and, I never had. And that gets, like, that is such a disservice to myself that gets in the way every day, multiple times a day. I'm starting to see it now. See that, um, you know, that, like, the, that, um, oh, shoot, what's the word? Uh, extrapolation from, from now and what's happening now extrapolate out a day, a week, a month. doesn't even have to be years. Like, how's, how's that going? And the practice of doing that is an active practice. It's a habit I have to build because I haven't. I've just been trundled along, trundling along like I have all the time in the world. So you and I have two very different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Mine has been, since I was a little child, I have lived very much with a memento mori, um, the Latin phrase, remember you will die memento mori, <laughs> yeah. um, that is like central to my self-concept. Um, I started losing people very young. Plus I grew up on a farm where I watched slaughter happen. Like I, it was very, very normalized. I was told my mother would die young. Um, yeah. So, and you just didn't, that's just not what you internalized, even though death was present for that, you. You that, lost yeah. your father at just 17. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So it was present. And we uh, just did different things with it. We did. And I don't know how much, um, I don't, I'm not, this isn't blame. This is just pure curiosity. I wonder how much the uh, Golden Boy experience helped me, supported me in my belief that, oh. well, that's for other people in some like deep psychological yeah. way. Because obviously there's nothing rational about it. Are you a human? Yeah. You know what the lifespan of a human is? Yeah. What are you going to do about that? Ignore it. And that was what yeah, I, did. I guess there's some <laughs> that it sounds like a Dan Ariely problem. Totally. That sounds rationally irrational. Rationally irrational. Like mm -hmm. I can hear the sense that it is like because in an existential sense, none of it matters. Doesn't matter. Like you're a speck of dust in the universe, and it just doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Except humans are meaning making creatures. So it does matter in the context of you making meaning and your relationships matter in the context of you making meaning and your choices about how you design those relationships matter. And you are the first person who talked to me about meaning. Deek, dude. Just didn't come up. We weren't having real conversations until you were in your 40s. Mm -hmm. I, I don't remember anybody talking about meaning. So... I could have maybe stretched my reading a little bit <laughs> throughout my life. and Well, know, that's funny, toward... though, because actually you read Pratchett plenty. So somebody was talking about meaning, but you weren't receiving it. But I it. wasn't receiving it. Because if you You're read right. any of Terry Pratchett's books, 
Yeah, let me. I should have said, I don't remember anyone talking to me about meaning. Well, so because it was that's not communicated because to you. I wasn't receiving you it. You didn't receive it. I didn't it. keep it. I didn't land. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and that I think actually that was one of the large parts of the conversations I had with my brother was we we had made different sense out of a very shared, a very similar upbringing. We were raised in the same house. We made different meaning out of it, and so we did different things with it, and coming to terms with the fact that each of us was correct. Like we had to like, yep, that was just mm -hmm. the reality. Um, that that made new meaning. And what it was was new shared meaning. And, and there it is. There's yeah. the relationship. Right. Because the Venn diagram of me, myself, and you as sacred other, completely separate and other, the Venn diagram, where those two overlap, and you get that beautiful vesica Pisces, that 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 section, that segment that is overlapped, whether that's a tiny little sliver or it's big and 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 chunky. That's in the spot where you have found shared meaning, shared purpose. And for my, in my experience, that's the place where I want to spend as much of my relational energy as possible because I. I want to let the rest of it be for you. Like right. you, like you get right. to be different. I, yeah. So where we're shared, let's be shared. Let's really embrace that. But then where you're different, let you be entirely yourself and different and weird to me. Weird. Mm -hmm. like, oh, that's, you're so, so weird. weird. <laughs> because that lets us, um, that lets us both have the dream relationship that we envision. Because we can't really have one. We don't have a dream relationship that we've envisioned. We're co-creating yeah. a relationship that hopefully aligns enough with my... <laughs> you know, like our... Well, would our, you say that that shared meaning overlap, Vesica Pisces, is what we can use to create a shared vision? Sure. Yeah. And it's... You used a word earlier. You said they're compatible. They're compatible visions. Compatible visions. That's They're right. It doesn't have to be purposes, the same vision compatible. and meaning and purpose. Right. Because there's right. So there's the overlap. Oh, that's interesting. So there's the overlap of our meaning. Mm -hmm. And then there's the stuff that isn't in the overlap. Yeah. But is compatible. But is compatible. It's, yeah. And then there's the stuff that really isn't. And maybe that's it. The at the end of the day, you know, some of the more important to me relationships that have then ended, what I recognize is, you know, when I have perspective and distance from the ending of that relationship, I'm, oh, um, our shared, the shared portion of our meaning, of our purpose, no longer, it was just no longer relevant. Um, it was... It wasn't compatible anymore because it really wasn't compatible with our visions for ourselves. The stuff that wasn't that wasn't about us. Um, it's okay to no longer be compatible with someone because then it's all about how do I find the elegant ending? Um, how do I find a way to to end things in a, in a way that's productive and potentially generative for both of us? I'm. I'm very intrigued, though, by this idea of compatible enough because I, so, you know, I, I've been dating someone recently where I was like, wow, there's so much compatibility. Like, we have so much compa compatibility, um, but 
she just made it very clear that she's no longer emotionally available. I'm like, oh, okay, interesting. Well, what does that mean now? Yeah. Do we, you know, if she's not emotionally available, now I need to take into consideration, are we no longer compatible? Because I don't want to be the only emotionally available person in this relationship. Okay. Yeah. So for your purposes and the meaning you make out of your days, that situation may no longer may fit no at longer all. work for you. So that makes that actually, <laughs> it makes it easier to envision what a dream relationship with that person is. Because now the, the dream might oh. be to end. Yeah. To be, to be complete because we're no longer, um, we no longer have shared meaning that, uh, that makes sense to share our very limited time on this earth doing this stuff together. So we went from vision to meaning and then back to vision. Uh, it's, I, you, you wove together a nice little tapestry there. Well, I know this is a, I know this is the kind of conversation that some people love and some people are like, what the hell? Just tell me what the steps are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's always what this podcast is going to be, is sort of tacking back and forth between. Yeah. I love being practical. I do. I will. I love giving you action steps. If you work with me in, um, in my coaching practice, you will get action steps and homework and specific assignments. And I love these conversations that are about um, uncovering um, what what the only place I can do this is in conversation. I can't actually do it alone inside of me. You need it to reflect and bounce and, and bring new things. And you're bringing well, me new things. And Thomas More said conversation is the sex act of the soul. Right. This is definitely the best sex I have in my life. <laughs> well, me too. The, and we have really good sex, so that's that's saying something. Yeah, yeah. This is this is good stuff. Nice, for me, it's so satisfying. So you talked about enjoying talking about the meanings of words. Yeah. This is like that for relationships, for for not just relationships, but um, for the whole psyche. Like, yeah. what's going on in there? Let's talk about how we make meaning about how our souls, ourselves, bounce up against each other. Not just let them do it and experience it, but back up a level and say, what's going on here? Yeah, so people ask me all the time why I, why the tagline of playing with fire is non-monogamy and individuation. I'm like, oh, because these two, these are my two non-negotiables. I study jealousy academically. I do care about jealousy, but actually my niche, my reason for being <laughs> is I believe that Exploring expansive relationships is a path absolutely that will absolutely set you on your individuation path. It like it will innately, it will just bring you there. It, you cannot avoid your individuation path unless you are willing to do non-monogamy with your head stuck in the ground like an ostrich, which will pretty quickly turn into a disaster all around you anyways, at which point, as soon as you pull your head out of that ground, there yep. you are. You find yourself in your own mess. So yep. I just think it's such a juicy overlap of topics, and it is exactly, it is exquisitely 
exactly what I selected for myself. I am a depth psychologist who absolutely finds the, the whole world of non-monogamies and simply even considering non-monogamy, even if you don't want to do it. Yeah. It's such it's... a fruitful place to engage in your own individuation process, which once again is really just the process of becoming more and more yourself by stripping away all the things that you are wearing as a persona because someone else asked you to and remembering recalling recollecting all those parts that you cut off because someone or something encouraged you to dismember them so yeah this is this is exactly why i do everything i do and conversations like this if they light you up yeah spend more time in my space because this is exactly why i do the work i do and I'm so glad you are, are here and participating oh, because you add something to this conversation you. that I, um, I could never do. You have a completely different perspective. And that's how I feel about so many people in my life. I'm like, oh, this is why others, capital O, other yeah. matters so much. Yeah. Because the in-between, I get to desire you because I cannot have you. Nope. I can't. Nope. You I, are you. I can't have you. You're... You're over there and you have experiences that I will never have had. Thank the gods for differentiation. Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Thanks so much for talking. Thank you. There's no one right way to design your relationship. And lots of people, actually about 25%, according to a recent national survey, are interested in some type of open relationship. But how do you know if you are ready to open up happily? Not everyone is, and that's no problem. I've got a 60-second quiz that will give you the answer. And even better, you'll walk away with your next step, whether you're good to go or not so much when it comes to opening up. And this is no BuzzFeed nonsense. I personally designed this quiz from my years of academic research. Go to joliquiz.com. That's J-O-L-I-Q-U-I-Z.com. And find out if you're ready to open up happily and what to do if you are or if you're not.